Good morning. Good morning. Are we up? Are we up? Good morning. There we go. Happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Uh, Welcome to South Canyon Baptist Church. I am Ken Schaefer. I am a member here. If you are a visitor, welcome. Welcome. We are glad to have you. We are happy to have you. Um, And it's no coincidence that you are here. God doesn't do coincidences. He does divine appointments. So we believe you are meant to be here to celebrate our risen Savior with us this morning. What we'd like you to do, though, if you would, is if you look at the seat back in front of you, there are connection cards. If you would uh, put your information on that card, maybe a prayer request, if we can pray for you for some some, um, circumstance or, or event. Then uh, at the end of the service, go out um, through the doors, and in the back there is a uh, connect desk. Give that to the people at the connect desk or put it in a slot, and we will give you a small gift in appreciation for you celebrating uh, our Lord's uh, resurrection with us today. We would like to highlight our um, life classes that start at 9 a.m. on Sundays for the youth and adults. Next Sunday, a new class begins, The Art of Parenting. There's also a theology class on conversion, an ongoing Bible study, working through Hebrews. Uh, You can find information on all of these in your bulletin, which I hope you picked up this morning. If you recently began attending attending South Canyon Baptist Church, our five-week discovery class is being offered. Now, um, taking this five-week discovery class, and it begins next Sunday, by the way, taking this class doesn't obligate you to become a member, but if you want to become a member, you must take this class. Uh, But the class is also a great way to learn about uh, the history of our church um, and what we stand for, what our mission is, what we believe, what our statement of faith as a church is. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and sign up to take that class. It begins next Sunday. And um, again, it doesn't obligate you to become a member, but if you want to become a member, and I hope you do, uh, you will need to take that class at some point. There is a mission trip to Tanzania being organized through Teaching Truth International, TTI. The dates are August 10th through August 27th. There's still room for two more people on this mission trip. If you are interested in attending or want to get more information, um, contact Pastor James or Ruth Clevenger. And next Sunday, there will be a sending lunch for the Blossers. We are celebrating Pastor Tanner leaving. No, that's not exactly right. We're celebrating Pastor Tanner accepting the lead pastorship at uh, Wilmot Place Baptist Church. We are uh, actually sad to see them go, but excited for what God has in plan and in store for Pastor Tanner and his family as the lead pastor at this church. And uh, next Sunday, we are having a sending uh, lunch. If you would like to bring something, sign up on the sign-up sheets uh, outside the sanctuary. And uh, let's make it a special time where we can um, say goodbye to the Blosser family and also encourage them on what God has in store for them for the future. Uh, That is all I have. Um, Again, happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen.
Amen. Please stand for our call to worship. Call to worship is from 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Our Savior is risen. Let's celebrate that together.
Amen. You may be seated. We will be reading Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. At this time, uh, the choir here is going to help introduce a new song for us. It's a song called He Lives, and the chorus just simply proclaims uh, the truth that we're celebrating this morning. He lives. All honor and power are his. All glory forever. Amen. Jesus lives. So let's go ahead and stand and we'll let the choir help lead us in this new song.
is risen. He is risen. He's alive. Beneath the broken shadow sin and death did reign the king of glory left his throne aside the clouds of heaven opened and mercy fell like rain to bring the darkened past a future bright something greater Something greater has come Upon the cross of sorrow The cup of wrath ran dry The dying Savior drinking every drop And the sting of death accepted final breath of love our greatest gain was heaven's greatest loss something greater something greater has come something greater something greater
see The lame is gonna run And the sin is gonna sing Sing the morning The Lord is gonna dance And the blind are gonna see And the lame is gonna run The sin is gonna sing Because Jesus is alive He's won the victory So let the prodigal come home Let the captive be set free Well, the kingdom's gonna come And the church is gonna Honestly, it's kind of hard to speak after singing like that, you know? <clears throat> it is exciting to share this moment with you as we celebrate our risen Savior and as we look forward to uh, just feasting on His Word today from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> we just want to pray as we begin And ask God to help us not only hear his word, but to continue to rejoice as we hear his word, knowing what we've just sung about, these truths, let let that profoundness settle into our hearts. And so as you're turning there, in the Bibles that are provided, it's page 1016. If you see a blue Bible in front of you, you're welcome to take that as a gift from South Canyon. Um, and no donations required. That's just our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of those home with you today and, and take time to read God's Word. And I promise you, doing that <clears throat> will bring about a greater understanding of who God is, and perhaps, if you're not a believer, even lead to your salvation, your confession that he is indeed a living Savior. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that we have sung already, the word that we have heard read, and the reminders of your great grace, this great salvation that you've given us. 
We pray and ask simply, Lord, knowing the weakness of our words, although we are thankful for artists who can create and put both lyrics and music together to give expression to our hearts, we know that words simply aren't enough to reflect our profound and abiding gratitude for the fact that you have saved us. There was no worth or value in us, and yet you redeemed us. And we just humbly come before you today to just celebrate you. And we're thankful that we can do this with this great assembly. We are thankful that all over the world, your people are gathering around your word and around the person of Jesus to celebrate him, to make much of him. We pray, pray your blessing be not only on this congregation, but even those across this city, Redeeming Grace, Calvary Baptist, Hills of Grace, Hills View, countless others, Lord, that we could list off, that we pray for our brothers and sisters as they worship you, that your word would be exalted, and truly, your people would grow as a result of this encounter with you, and even more, that new people would be brought into the family of God. As we look ahead, we ask your blessing on our hearing of the word. We know that we can be distracted. We know that it is hard to focus on things that are um, profound, and yet your word is simple enough that a child can understand it and profound enough that a lifetime of study will not exhaust its depths and its riches. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bend low to the humblest state of your people once again. You would feed us today and that you would give us hearts to respond with faith and devotion. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you have brought to us. We thank you for the great glory that you have subjugated all powers, all angels and authorities to the person of Jesus. We praise you for his greatness. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if you're there in First Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> please follow along as I read verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone, excuse me, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, we're here this morning 
And actually, every Sunday when we gather as a church, we are celebrating this day. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I, I encourage you, if you haven't um, been around here long, <clears throat> go back into our sermon archives, listen to Tanner's exposition over four weeks from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The, the profound necessity of the resurrection is the basis for our whole faith. If Jesus didn't rise, we have no hope. We have no faith. It's a lie. But this morning as we gather, and each week as we gather, we're not just celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, we're also actually proclaiming the significance of it. What does this actually mean for us? Our text, I think, answers this. The book of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are suffering for their faith. In a real way, they are being persecuted by their culture. Whether it's their neighbors or co-workers, employers, what have you, it is spreading this persecution. And Peter kind of looks around the corner, as it were, and he believes that even greater persecution is going to come. And so he's writing to these Christians to remind them of Jesus' example. And so when you suffer for doing good, what did Jesus do? That's in chapters 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. His example shows us that he did not revile the people who reviled him. He did not uh, exchange their offenses and give back what he was given. He, He wasn't looking out to even a score. And this is an example for us on how to model suffering. But then as we get to chapter 3 and verses 13 through 22, it seems that Peter has reached kind of the pinnacle of his argument in the book. So in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, he's, he's reminding Christians of the great salvation that God has given them. A salvation that is rooted in a living hope. It's the person and the work of Jesus And it can't be touched by anything in this world. And then as he gets into the end of chapter 1, into the middle of chapter 2, he's he's saying, hey guys, I'm calling you to holiness because Christ has called us to holiness. Even if we suffer at the hands of government, our employers. And as we come to this portion, he's, he's kind of, his argument has reached the pinnacle of the book. Let Christ's work remind you that he is with you in your suffering and he will vindicate you. Everything in this letter builds to this point. What follows in chapter 4 is that Peter is calling them to adopt Jesus' outlook, his mindset, and trust your faithful God, live a gospel-centered, God-glorifying life, and then he wraps up chapter 5 with some instructions to the church and the elders and the pastors and the congregation. But in our verses this morning, we need to understand that these believers are struggling with fear. They're afraid of those that are persecuting them. And in verses 13 through 17, Peter said, hey, don't be afraid of them. Honor the Lord as holy. Fear God, not your fellow man. Even if you suffer for Jesus' sake, it's better that you keep a good conscience and suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing wrong. And now, as he gets to his argument, he gives the motivation for adopting Jesus' outlook. Because even though Christ suffered, and when we suffer, we are to emulate Christ, Christ's suffering didn't end in this world. 
it all moved toward his exaltation. We see that in verses 20 through 22, that he ascended after his resurrection to heaven at seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now in power. So Peter's wanting to argue that the end of Jesus' experience wasn't the cross. And for all who are suffering, the end of your experience won't be the grave. Now, according to the theologian, the reformer, Martin Luther, the text that I've chosen this morning is, and I quote, as strange a text and enigmatic a saying as there is anywhere in the New Testament, so that I do not yet know exactly what St. Peter means. All that to say, why in the world did I pick this? If Martin Luther didn't get it, what are we doing here? Well, like I said, uh, suffering Christian, we are called to rejoice in our living hope. That Jesus, that's, that's the kind of the big umbrella of this passage. We who are suffering, and, and suffering is going to take on many shapes. It's not just, hey, you're, you're reading your Bible at school and classmates are making fun of you. It's not just that you're trying to share the gospel with coworkers and they blow you off. Suffering in this world also means the agonies of the flesh, right? The temptations to sin. That wrestling that we have within our hearts that we want to do the right, but then we find ourselves doing wrong, as Paul says. This wretched state of having a conscience that's been reborn and remade, and yet we find ourselves going back to old ways. Suffering Christians ought to rejoice in Jesus, our living hope. How do we do this? So here's the practical realities of this text. We remember the consequential outcomes of Jesus' work. So Jesus died for a reason. What is that reason? What did his death produce? If you look at verse 18, we see that although we suffer... We rejoice because Jesus has reconciled us to God. We'll unpack that in a moment. Verses 19 through 21. Although we suffer, we rejoice in Jesus' life and victory over our enemies. And then in verse 22. Although we suffer, we rejoice that Jesus' position and power secured our future vindication. <clears throat> now, these are the three points of the sermon this morning. The big idea, the thing that I hope you'll walk away with, is that as you suffer as a Christian, that you can rejoice in Jesus, who is your living hope. So let's find out how Jesus' work is meant to motivate us to have joy in our suffering. Let's look at verse 18. Notice the four statements emphasizing the uniqueness of Jesus in this verse. We're told that Jesus suffered once for sins. In verse 18, Peter reminds these believers of the suffering death of Jesus. He was there. He witnessed it. He knew that Jesus had died. But in this letter, he never uses the word died for Jesus. Instead, 11 times, he says that Christ suffered. 
So clearly, if you are a suffering for the faith, to know that your Lord and Savior also suffered, there's a little bit of shared camaraderie there. There's a little bit of comfort there. There's a little bit of hope there. He knows the afflictions that you're dealing with. And clearly, Peter wants to connect Christ's suffering with Christians who were suffering. And so, we see that Jesus' death wasn't the result of a lifelong illness. It wasn't a physical abnormality. It wasn't a tragic accident, unexpected. His suffering involved offering himself once for all the unrighteous or the righteous for the unrighteous. Which leads us to the second observation that Peter makes about Jesus. Not only did he suffer once for sins, but Jesus is righteous. And this is an allusion to Jesus' sinlessness, which comes in chapter 2 and verse 22. Which means Jesus' suffering was undeserved. There's nothing Jesus ever did in his entire life that warranted anyone to look sideways at him for any correction, any rebuke, any offense. Chapter 2, as I said a moment ago, Peter uses Jesus' example of being suffering as the servant who went to the cross as a model for us when we suffer for obeying God. But here in chapter 3, Jesus isn't using Jesus' example to call his followers to follow out Jesus' example. You can't, because this is the uniqueness of Christ. Listen to this. Christ's suffering is that of the righteous for the unrighteous. Even though we may suffer as Christians, even though we may suffer our sins or we cannot suffer for the sins of others. Our suffering doesn't constitute a sacrifice that absolves others of sins. Our suffering cannot bring unbelievers to God. This is how our Christ is unique. And Peter understands this. He is saying, Christ died for me, one of the unrighteous. I'm writing to unrighteous people. And yet God, because of his righteousness, has used Jesus to bring us to him. <clears throat> Here's a <clears throat> I don't know what it is. This morning, we also see a fourth thing here in verse 18. Jesus brings us to God. Let's just think about this simply. All right? You know somebody famous. And you are going to introduce your friend to him. You can do that, right? Because you know that person, that famous person. If I tried to walk up to any famous person and introduce you to them, they'd be like, I don't know you. I don't know any famous people. I know a lot of infamous people, but not famous people. If in order for Jesus to present us to the Father, he has to have access to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only... Did Jesus suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous? But this suffering Jesus brings us to the Father. No one gets access to God apart from Christ. 
It's a holy God who reconciles sinners to himself. You can't work your way into God's favor. God, through Jesus, has brought us to his side. It's Jesus who leads and reconciles people to God. We cannot find God on our own. In Jesus, we can ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. Because of his imputed righteousness, we now have clean hands. We now have a pure heart. We don't lift our souls up to what is false, nor do we swear deceitfully. We will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. These are all promises that are spoken of in Psalm 24. But then we also see a fourth point here in verse 18. And it's right there at the very end of it. It's that Jesus died physically and Jesus rose physically. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Keep in mind, Peter is contrasting these two realities, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Although Jesus suffered a physical death, we need to also understand he, suffered, or he experienced a physical resurrection when the spirit raised him. Which means this, those who suffer for Jesus have the hope that they will be risen like Jesus was. This is what makes this day, this gathering on a Sunday, so unique. We're celebrating a living hope. Even as we celebrate Easter, the Jewish feast of Passover is being observed. A feast in which a lamb without blemish was to be sacrificed. Its blood was to be taken and painted on the doorframe of the Israelite home. So that the angel of death would see it. and literally pass over that household, sparing them from death. Is it any wonder then that John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Is it any wonder that Jesus used the Paschal language, the Passover language to describe himself? I mean, this is what we are proclaiming here at South Canyon, that there is this Christ who died for sinners, righteous for unrighteous, that he rose again, and we want to proclaim to the nations this hope of the forgiveness of sins that are found in Christ alone. I wonder if there are obstacles in your life that may need to be overcome in order to have this hope. Maybe some of us have been suffering for doing good or for doing evil, Maybe some of us need to ask God to grant us the salvation that he promises in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our conscience. Have your trials, Christian, have your testings, have they kind of blocked out any light of hope that you might have in Christ? I hope that today as we look at his word again, That you will see the marvelous grace of God that he gives such gifts as this to people who are so undeserving. We're completely unlovely. I mean, we've dressed ourselves up this morning. That's good. Appreciate that no one came here in the birthday suit. You know, that's a good thing. But to be honest, our attention spans, our faith, our focus on the right things is far too often short-lived. And yet, God loves us. 
mean, like, he doesn't think you're going to get better, and so he's holding out. He knows exactly who we are, and he loves us. I mean, that's just amazing grace. Although we suffer for Christ, we rejoice in our living hope who has reconciled us to God. Now, I'm going to have to move quickly here, and this is going to frustrate some of us, including myself, uh, because this really could be like a four-part sermon series. Verses 19 to 21 is really complicated. So let's look at it real quick, and I'm going to give you a really high-level view. I've got like 10 pages of notes that I can share with you afterward if you want to know my thoughts and all the sources that I've studied and dug up this last week. But look what it says. It says this. Uh, Jesus went and he preached in which, we've got one long sentence between 18 to 20. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What in the world? This is the part Martin Luther was talking about. So here's the point of verses 19 through 21. It's this. Although we suffer, and it's the second point of our sermon this morning, let us rejoice in Jesus' resurrection and victory over our enemies. Now, it's who are the spirits in prison? What kind of proclaiming is Jesus is doing? Uh, what in the world does the flood have to do with this? And how does that connect to baptism? You see why this is a little complicated? I think Jesus is not preaching the gospel. He is proclaiming his victory through his resurrection. There's a lot to unpack there. We don't have time. I don't think Jesus was doing the LSU Angel Reese giving Iowa Caitlin's Clark the you-can't-see-me gesture, but it was pretty close. The risen Jesus had imprisoned angels, and you can go back to Genesis 6 through 9. I think that's where we get the reference to Noah and the flood, and we see that there was great sin And in this rebellion of angels against their creator, they created a a war against God. And the offense of some was so great that God imprisoned them. They tried to thwart God's plans of being accomplished in the world. That's why Satan comes to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden because they're the pinnacle of God's creation. And so if they can destroy that which was made in the image of God, then perhaps Satan thinks he can rule this world that God has created. So I think what Jesus is doing is he is shouting out his victory. I am alive. Nothing can touch me anymore. And he is doing this 
to people in prison or spirits in prison. And this is another really weird and difficult passage, so I'll cut right to the chase. I don't think Jesus is preaching vicariously through Moses in the Old Testament. 120 years of building an ark, and people are gathering around as it gets bigger and bigger. Moses, what are you doing? Well, God told me to do this because there's a day of reckoning coming, and if you want to get on board, then you need to follow God's word, and you need to join me. I don't think Jesus is preaching to those people through Moses. I don't think Jesus is preaching to Old Testament saints. I think Jesus is proclaiming his victory. He's not declaring the gospel. And I think he is proclaiming his victory to those enemies, those angels who have rebelled against him, who believed Satan's lies and deceptions, and who thought they could undermine the ways and the work of God. And I think of this because of this. Here's the reason why I get to this. The word prison is used in Scripture to describe a place where people are held on earth. We see that all over in the book of Acts, 2 Corinthians. But it's never used to describe a place of punishment for human beings after death. But it is for angels. You look at Revelation 20, Revelation 18... Here's another closer contextual argument for why I think this is angels and not people. In chapter 1, verse 12 of this very letter, 1 Peter, Peter reminds his readers that, you guys, you have this privilege that angels were like peering over the wall in heaven wondering, how is God going to do all this? You look at verse 12 of chapter 1. They longed to look at the mysteries that surrounded redemption. Right here in chapter 3, in verse 22, what, does, what do we read? That Christ has subjugated angels, authorities, and powers. And then later in chapter 5, Peter warns his readers, right? That famous passage, to watch out for your adversary, who like a roaring lion is walking about seeking someone whom he may devour. In Second Peter He writes, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And on and on we could go. So I think Jesus is not preaching the gospel. I think Jesus is saying, I am the champion. I own it all. I have been victorious over sin, and I have conquered death. There is nothing that can lay a hold of me and defeat me. That is not bragging, that's fact. For us, it would be boasting. In Christ, he did it. When you live a sinless life, maybe you could say that, but you've already started on the wrong foot and a couple lifetimes short. So here we see, uh, we come to verse 20. How does the flood figure into all this? I think Peter's using this as an illustration to make the point. You remember in Noah's day, 120 years of building this ark, God showed incredible patience to people. Noah's doing what he's supposed to do, but we see that people weren't immediately destroyed. They weren't immediately punished for doing wicked things. God showed patience, and not only did he withhold judgment, but God also gave them the word during that time through Noah. 
Just like he does today. So as a young man, growing up in church, I remember the first time I used God's name in vain. Serious. And I thought like that. I'm looking around. What's going to happen? I thought God was going to strike me dead the first time I did that. It didn't happen. That's a part of God's patient mercy. doesn't mean it's right. It means that God is patient. And then here's the other side of it. God is allowing us, even here in this room today, to hear his word because he wants to give us an opportunity to believe these things about Jesus, to understand the significance of what Jesus has done, to know that we can rejoice in the one who has reconciled us to God. We can rejoice in the one who is victorious over our enemies and who has rose from the dead. So Peter's using a historical fact to illustrate the current situation facing these believers, Christians who are suffering. He's saying, brothers and sisters, have faith. Persevere. Even in the face of overwhelming wickedness, understand that suffering for the gospel is going to happen. Understand that people will reject the gospel even though they hear it. Notice the fact that only eight were saved. And all the rest perished. This would be a comfort to people who were not seeing kingdoms fall. And princes and rulers and governors and officials. All mass conversions breaking out. They were a great minority within their day. And yet they see that God is faithful to preserve them. Not all are going to respond to God's word with repentance. And yet, those who do need a joyful perseverance, understanding that their salvation is guaranteed by God's word. Friend, only in this life do you have the opportunity to respond to Jesus with faith. I just said, I really believe Jesus wasn't preaching the gospel to, believe, uh, to people who'd already died. He wasn't giving people second chances. I mean, you think about it. If you did go that route, whether it was universalism, then what is the point of living a holy life today, which is what we are called to over and over in this letter and in the New Testament? If we all get a big, gigantic, cosmic do-over, then why in the world even come to church? Why aren't we in the hills fishing? Why aren't we robbing banks? Because it matters. And this life is the only life in which you can respond in faith to Jesus. There will be a day, Paul uh, says this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth. Angels and people. That Jesus is Lord of all. And that comes from Isaiah 43. This is the day of salvation. This is the moment if God is speaking to your heart. Then I encourage you, don't delay. Our response should be immediate. We're not guaranteed another day. Remember, those who died, as he quotes from Genesis 9. Those who died, they died because of their sin. Noah and his family weren't saved because they were sinless. They were saved because God showed them mercy. 
and because they believed God's word. Christian, understand that the first readers of this letter were suffering at the hands of their society, and in spite of their small number, Peter told them not to be discouraged. I don't know what the future holds for our country. Honestly, it doesn't matter to me. And I know that's provocative, because this is South Dakota, which is a lot like Indiana, where I came from. And faith and politics kind of get married. But you know what? I serve, we serve a living Savior. And while we are to work and pray for our cities, and we are to do good things for the blessing of other people, this is not our home. And here's the reality. There is going to be a day likely when we will be in even more of a minority and we will suffer even more for the name. So prepare yourself with this understanding. Might doesn't make right. Numbers don't validate a truth. Jesus is a living Savior, our living hope. So God is doing this work. Peter's wanting to bring their attention to it. And then let's just get to baptism really quick, and then we'll wrap things up with a third and short point. Baptism here, what in the world does Noah and all these people who died in a flood have to do with baptism? Again, this should be a lot more sermons, but I'm going to be really nice to you all because it's Easter, okay? We got to Peter's point here. The water flooded the world in Noah's day. It, it was a sign of judgment for everyone, and yet God saved Noah and his family from the water. That serves as a pattern for what we see in baptism. How does that work? Well, if you look at verse 21, Peter was very clear. He's not saying that baptism has saving power. He says at the end of verse 21 that it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these commas and these little ways that he packed it together, we need to undo it a little bit to understand. But he wants believers to understand that baptism is more than just a mechanical thing or a superficial thing. He wants to understand what's really happening in here. And so in the flood, everything was killed off. Everything that lived on land, everything that flew in the air, the only things that survived were in the ark. And water baptism that we practice here is a sign of being buried underwater. It's a sign of death. In the New Testament times, people who acknowledged their desire to die to sin were baptized by John the Baptist. It was a shadow of what Jesus was about to experience. He described his whole ministry and what it would culminate with in the cross as a baptism. Paul recognized this in Romans 6. So the flood was in Noah's day an agent of destruction. Baptism waters are also waters of destruction. See, in New Testament theology, what we understand is that believers survive the death-dealing baptismal waters because we are baptized in Christ. We are rescued through His resurrection. Let let me just get a little more specific because Peter does it here. Baptism, which corresponds to this, 
saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism, water will wash us of dirt, but only Jesus' blood can cleanse us from sin. And that cleansing comes from the union with Christ that's a confessional union. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And what Peter means there is, God, I recognize your holiness and my sinfulness. God, I recognize Jesus is your sin substitute sent into this world, divinely God and man, taking upon himself the curse meant for me. And God, I believe your promise that in Christ you will forgive me, that the righteous who died once has taken away the sins of the world. And I trust in that. That's the appeal to God for a good conscience. Wash me, make me clean. Baptism comes after it. It's the caboose on the train. It's not the engine. And so what we see here is this appeal that Peter is encouraging these Christians to make is that baptism is a washing of water, but it is not one that comes uh, with salvation. Salvation precedes baptism, which is why we as a church, uh, we do what's called creedal or confessional baptisms, believer's baptisms, where someone says, I want to follow Jesus, I have followed Jesus, here's my faith, here's what I understand about the gospel, and now I want to be identified as a Jesus follower. <clears throat> this good conscience that Peter speaks of is the result of true salvation that has cleansed the heart. We understand that God has not only saved us from our sins, but now as we want to be baptized, we are accepting the duties that come as a follow of Jesus. You see, baptism marks out those who are in the faith as a public display of your loyalty to God. It assures us of our salvation. We're going to follow Jesus in obedience. It's a sign also of our willing commitment to live Jesus' way, even if it means suffering. True baptism comes by the Spirit. It's the work of the Trinity. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Spirit given to us. It's something we experience. It is not something we do. Water baptism is different. It's something we do to testify to our real faith in that true baptism. That Christ indeed has changed us and saved us. And I want to just say, thank the Lord that Peter's focus isn't on the promises that believers make when they get baptized. But the promises God makes to us in Christ. Because if we've ever broken our promises to God, this should be a very comforting truth. You may break your promise to live a holy and pure life, but we can be confident that God is not like us, and that based on the work of Jesus, that we have a, God, a relationship with God that will absolve us and has dealt with our sin. So, Let's jump to the third and final point here in verse 22. <clears throat> Although we suffer, let us rejoice that Jesus' position and power secured our future vindication. 
And it's finally taking center stage here in verse 22. Notice at the beginning of the verse, Peter emphasized that Jesus has gone. He ascended into heaven after his resurrection. So it's not like he died and went to heaven. He rose again from the grave and then ascended. And that word has gone is the same word we find in verse 19 where Jesus went into the abyss to proclaim his victory over the demonic angels. And so this victorious risen Jesus has entered heaven and he took his place next to the seat of power. This is a reference to Psalm 110 and verse 1 where uh, David, David's Lord sits at Yahweh's right hand and he rules. It circles us back to verse 19 where emphasizing that angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Jesus. And all of this is to make the point that Jesus rules and reigns. Listen to Isaiah 45. This is what God says through his prophet Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. You hear that? This is foretelling what is going to happen when Philippians 2, 9 through 11 happens. Angels and people who reject the gospel will come to Jesus, the one who enraged them, and they shall be ashamed. And they will have to admit his sovereignty over them. His power. While the passage has so many challenging undertones, the overall message that Peter is giving to this church or these churches is this. In your suffering, never forget that Jesus still reigns and rules. He will never surrender his children into the power of the evil forces. Even if it means your death, God is not going to let go of you. Because of his death and his resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over all demonic forces, which means by implication, once again, that not only does he provide a model for us in our suffering, but his exaltation provides a model for us as hope. You may be an unknown in this world. You may be rejected by people. Coming to faith in Christ, I know people who it has cost them their families. I went to seminary with a Jewish brother. When he became a Christian, literally, his family had a funeral for him. Literally, he got cut off. No family credit cards, no funding, no finances. He was not welcome at home. This this may be your reality, but know this. Because of what happened to Jesus, what we see in this day, this risen Savior who has ascended to heaven, who now sits and has subjected all powers to himself, 
that that is your future. I know that we may instinctively pray to avoid suffering. We ask God, take it away. We want to get away from these circumstances when they come our way. We ask God to just pluck us up out of it, bring in a sugar daddy to take care of all of our financial struggles, whether it's a difficult situation at work, whether it's trouble within our home, whether it's financial hardship, whether it's chronic pain. We want to escape and avoid suffering, sickness, and death. But I think what Peter is saying as he draws from Genesis and then he applies it to those audience that he's writing to here is that the same God who saved Noah and his family from the flood is the same God who preserved them in that storm. And that same God will do the same for us. He will give you strength to navigate the hard season that you're in. He has given you the promise that His grace is sufficient. I wonder what this might look like in our homes, in our churches, in our work, and in our society. Your young parent raising young children and you're fatigued. It's 24-7. And then they all have different sleep cycles, right? And so you never get rest. Or maybe you're someone who's lost a spouse. Or someone who's dealing with chronic health problems. Or because of your faith, you are experiencing opposition or pressure at school or work to conform. Or maybe you're someone who's here who's under the guilt and conviction of sin. Or maybe you're someone who has named Jesus and confessed him but is yet to follow him in believer's baptism? This passage gives a warning and a word of hope. The warning is, just as in Noah's day judgment is coming, so too in our day judgment is coming because that ascended Jesus who's sitting at the right hand of power, who has been given control over all these things, is just waiting for the Father to say, go. And then that power will come to reshape everything in this cosmos. And so that is going to be a day of reckoning. Don't presume upon God's patience. Hope in the promise that God can save you. He can bring you to himself through the righteous one, Jesus. Christian, remember that your suffering is connected to Christ's suffering and therefore his victory is also yours. And that truth can and will and should give us joy even as we suffer. Because Jesus is alive. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we appeal to you. Please bring those that are far from you near through Jesus Christ. Help them to trust in Jesus, the living hope, for the forgiveness of their sins. And Father, we ask that all those who you have drawn near would persevere in the faith with joy.
We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.